one thing that you know it's certainly a pretty um big part of the start of episode one and episode two of my name is jake is when he's walking down the street and some of the people are looking at him um and they exchange glances uh there's one guy's mowing the lawn um there's another guy's buffing out his car and stuff and uh it turns out that um in part two um it's my wife and my daughter and my son are in uh the background in those so i sent some uh, still photos of that just because i think it's it's hilarious i'd sort of forgotten about it but uh, looking back on it um it's pretty pivotal pivotal a little, uh, little bit there because uh you know um uh, jake looks at uh this lady who's pushing a stroller and uh, she looks at him and he says beautiful day and she doesn't answer him she just kind of looks at him and and then she keeps going with her stroller and uh yeah it's it's a great moment we actually talked about that moment when we when we hit that episode i'm looking at those pictures now i remember we said like this this felt so much like this twin peaks moment of just how alien and weird the energy in that shot is yeah it's a, it's a good little moment yeah. there and uh my you know my wife isn't um she's an actor or anybody in no means is that the case uh, she was actually visiting set that day and uh, if i remember correctly the director uh, timothy bond wasn't too happy with those people on that street um and uh he uh he said oh you know no she'd be good is that your wife and i introduced uh him to uh, my wife and uh, my kids and he said oh, i'll make sure they have a good a good place in it yes i'd like them to be the background in this shot so um and i think they got a pretty good place i know uh, my wife told me that um that show played of course all over the world and her wife her mother sorry was um in england and said i just i just wanted to phone you and say i was watching this television show animorphs and i saw you and it wasn't <laughs> just a wide shot it was a close-up of you <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was a big deal yeah, for the family that's really cool yeah it was uh, something as i say that um uh i don't get in them very often but uh even in this one shot there's my son who's um he's playing baseball uh in the background so all three of them were in and uh i i wasn't in that of course because i'm working behind the scenes but um another thing that's in that is our car our old blue van is one of those cars that are parked up in the line up there in the uh, preceding little bit. And um, uh, that street that that is filmed on, I actually drive by there most days. Uh, I (laughs) I go and work out at the gym that's just around the corner from there. So that's kind of a part of my life almost every day, that street. That's really neat. That little bit there with uh, the mowing of the car and uh, Jake walking along and looking at those sort of um, suspicious looking, um, I guess, bystanders. Welcome to Minds at York. I'm Megan. My name is Alex. This week we are joined by Alan Doucette. Uh, he worked on the Animorphs TV show. Thank you for coming on to talk with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so you worked behind the scenes. You um, were, is it prop master as well for TV? I 
know a little because Alex's theater knowledge, but. Uh... Well, if you like, uh, I could start off by uh, explaining kind of what my job was on, on Animorphs. Yes, um, please. A, a property master um, is also known as a props person uh, in the day was props man. And uh, so uh, my involvement um, in terms of props on Animorphs uh, was, was pretty early on. There's a lot of design sort of features that uh, we needed to get down. Uh, the one I specifically remember is a little sort of, it was like a spinning hard drive uh, device <laughs> that they had. Um, I do have a few stories about that. But um, I just want to carry on with what my actual job was. So uh, the property master is responsible for all the items um, on a television series that are touched or handled or I suppose uh, eaten or uh, or shot at with a gun. <laughs> um, um, so I wouldn't have a lot of um, answers, for example, to how they got all the spaceship debris or wherever um, out at the industrial site where the, uh, it crashed. But um, so, yeah, my, my job as a props master is a bit more sort of confined to the, the small little bits that were going on there. So, uh, that, and that's, uh, that's what I had done. I had actually worked with Protocol, the company that made uh, that show. They did Goosebumps as well. And I was the props master on that. And oh, we also awesome. did another series out of there called um, Dear America. But yeah, I also did all of the uh, Goosebumps uh, episodes before that. And um, uh, in fact, they were running, the two series were running concurrently uh, for season um, four it would have been in 1998 so uh we were doing um going to do animorphs and goosebumps uh that summer and the way it worked out was that i'd been on all the other goosebumps and it was an anthology so the thought was that i would be um work I'd come into animorphs i would set it all up in terms of getting all the design stuff all the props that needed to be custom manufactured all done and then I actually handed it off to uh another lady named Jill Bedford and she became okay. the uh, props master after probably episode about maybe eight or 10. And, oh, cool. and I did all the final series of goosebumps that year. That's really and, cool. So that's kind of how I got on goosebumps. I'm sorry, on animorphs and, and, uh, mine there. So in those early days, how <laughs> much of the design and caveat, we, we recognize it has been 20 something odd years. Mm-hmm. How much of the, that initial design work did you really get a say in versus how much was dictated to you by Scholastic because of things in the books or any other sort of control that, you know, they wanted to have over the look and feel of the show? Um, well, I certainly, my recollection of it was that um, you had Timothy Bond, who was the uh, director um, of the first two episodes, uh, because they were the pilot episodes, he had a huge amount of involvement in how things would translate from the books into how they'd be um, seen on the screen. And those were huge monumental decisions they were making at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and you have no idea how that would difficult that would have been. Uh, let me start by, by saying that. Uh, I'll get back to that in a minute. But um, now, working with Ian Brock, I mean, I think um, I worked with him before, and he was a, the, uh, the production designer on Goosebumps. And so he came to me and he said, well, this is going to be our look, and um, can you, uh, you know, design these, uh, these things for us? And uh, I worked with him, and we came up with drawings. I mean, it was kind of a, a long time ago, so in terms of 
primitive things where we basically just had a sketch of what something was going to look like. We took it to a, um, a builder, and that's how we got the spinning hard drive type device. I forget what it's actually called, um, but that was, a, that was a big part of what we did. Um, the funny thing about Animorphs is that if you look at the first two episodes, My Name is Jake, one and two, we actually didn't have a lot going on there, the props department. Um, uh, a lot of it was, you know, the, the for example, getting the Andalites right, getting um, Visitor 3, is, uh, sorry, not Visitor 3 coming down, Elfang uh, he came down the ramp there. I mean, I wanted to get, come back to that because those were huge decisions they made. And so, for example, on this show, they made the decision they could not have all of Elfangor in the same shot. They just couldn't afford to do that, however. So you would get these shots of those hooves going down the ramp, and then you would <laughs> back to something, and you'd come back to the top of him as obviously some sort of a, a guy in a suit or whatever. Um, and um, those are huge decisions. I think maybe they were the wrong decisions to make. Um, in hindsight, um, and I think also the monster that chases uh, Jake into the little pipe tunnel there and the dog comes around a little bit later. Uh, again, I think that was uh, some uh, people sort of mocked the look of that. You know, it wasn't really scary enough. I don't know how that translates back to how the kids in the book saw it, but those are decisions that they made that um, they have to go the whole series with that now. Like the whole show is going to look that way. Every time that um, an Andalite comes down somewhere, they won't be able to see all of it. Um, they'll only see the hooves, and which meant painting the horse blue again. And funny enough, that was our job. And that's why I didn't want to have one funny story that I didn't want to tell. Wait, wait, wait. So those, wait, is that an actual horse painted blue? Only for the shot where um, uh, I guess it would be uh, Marco is where they try to trick them at the end where they've got a horse that's painted only blue from the legs down and it's hitting behind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that became our job to do that for some reason. And there is a chap that I still work for this day named John. Um, I won't give his last name. And I told him that your job, unfortunately, John, is to work with all night. And have to paint the bottom part of this horse blue. And of course he went, well, well how much of it? You know? <laughs> so I have to say oh. that it did involve him pacing, painting a good part of the horse's genitalia. Oh no! Um, yeah, and but it was part of the job, and he did it well. So um, I have so he, many he questions. Blue, yeah. And it was one of the few things we sort of did. But my other memories of uh, working on that first bit there, uh, where the, the plane, uh, sort of this spaceship crashes and all that, it was we shot all at night at a place called the Hearn Generating Station, an abandoned power station in Toronto. And it's still, it's still all there, all those sets, believe it or not, all those sites there where plane crashes and they recover the wreckage and where they hide and all that. That was all filmed at the Hearn plant. It's still there in East Toronto. But it was at night. And you know what? It's Animorphs hard to get tour. kids. It's hard. Yeah, I should start an Animorphs tour. Should. Um, <laughs> there, uh, and the other part, it was filmed at a lot of the stuff with the animals, especially, I think it was... Um, uh, supposed to be Cassie's mom, I think, worked um, at a uh, an animal sanctuary, something like that. Where mm-hmm. You see uh, people in lab coats and the uh, the animals running around there. Uh, that was filmed at Bowenville Zoo, which is a, a bit away from Toronto, but you know, within an hour. So we used to go there a couple of times. And I do have a, a couple of funny stories about that, if you don't mind. 
Oh, please. Um, all all the stories. We did some stuff with, um, with tigers there at the Bowmanville Zoo. They had a cage, which we actually paid, if I remember correctly, not my department, but, you know, animals paid money to have a good floor put there with concrete poured down. And we were thinking we'd film there a lot. We didn't film as much as we thought we would, but we definitely did a bunch of stuff from the pilot there. And if you look at the pilot and you'll see, as I say, there's a thing where there's deer running around and some other animals and you see that her mother comes out and talks to her. Anyway, there's a scene, I don't think it was for that first uh, two episodes, correct me if I'm wrong, where he has to go in and he has to touch a tiger uh, for this yes. uh, for this one bit. I think it was, I think it was uh, Jake. Jake, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did it. And, uh, you know, the camera department were in there too. And they're all set up. And uh, the, the tiger sort of was brought in and it was, it was chained. Everything seemed safe. And then the tiger was sort of upset and sort of moving more than normal. So the trainer suddenly yelled out quite loudly to us all. And I'll never forget this. He said, are there any menstruating females around? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. If so, I can't have you here. Please move away. <laughs> and I, I remember at least one moment sort of quietly laid right, her hands and she bowed out. Oh, and my gosh. And the thing in the world. But uh, then they said, okay. And they said, keep filming. And uh, the next thing I remember is that, you know, uh, Sean Ashmore, you know, he's going to be a huge, huge star. Goes to touch <laughs> the tiger and, uh, you know, it gets done and they go back and say, do you think we can do the end? The trainer says, no, I, I think that might be all you'll really get from the tiger. Um, was it okay? You didn't have enough? And well, agreed, yeah, it's probably enough. And so it's kind of like everybody sort of breathes a sigh of relief. And then the trainer, um, I didn't hear this part, but Ron Oliver, the director for that part, said that he remembered specifically said, Good because uh, when they get angry, I don't know what they could do, and he could And it was kind of one of these things where I think that was implied in some ways, but yeah, I'm not but, sure. You know, you just never know what you mean. <laughs> and we we got the best from the tiger that day, but I do remember we didn't do much with the tiger after that in the cage. Yeah, so, nope, that no? makes sense. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine what the uh, liability insurance for that production was. <laughs> no, oh my gosh, well, it was a long time ago, and uh, well, you know, I, I do want to sort of move on. It's a good part of segue here to say that a big problem with Animorphs the series was that the actual morphing scenes where they would physically change snout would you know extend out from the person they couldn't afford to do that much i mean it was cutting edge right. technology when they did that back in 98 mm-hmm. and i remember them saying that we can only really do it afford to do it a couple of times per episode so and you know you you, you could think of me and go no no that's not that's impossible i know for sure that for example you know uh when they're uh at the uh, abandoned power plant there that he he changes into this monster um i guess it would be Visser three and eats um he eats up uh elfangor um but that was actually played as um sort of shadow puppets as a as a yeah. as shadows on a big industrial thing mm-hmm. they could do afford to do that a lot more than they could afford to do the you know somewhat primitive looking uh morphing techniques that they were using at the time so um, it, it's kind of funny that uh, the thing was named after this working effect. They couldn't really afford to do that much. And <laughs> I think now it's so simple to do. They might do that at home with their Mac, but at the time it was just sort of a huge <laughs> ask of that. 
but I think it's kind of neat because they did do it in other ways, which yeah. sometimes involved a shadow or a look of sort of, you know, horror, uh, the reaction shot to the person. And while, meanwhile, you're hearing sort of, you know, bones crunching and, <laughs> and slime sort of slithering around. And then you cut back to maybe, you know, a part of something that's, that's glistening and moving a bit. They could afford to do that a lot more. They could afford to hit, okay, render this kid from, you know, um, a, a girl into a cat or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I understand why they used it, but you're right. It is really effective the way that they handled it off screen, that they almost could have gotten away with maybe doing the morphine thing once and then never again. And, you know, using that budget on something else because they did do it so effectively off screen. But and that's hindsight. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, looking back on it all, it was kind of a fad, this morphing effect. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they just wanted to use as much as they could. But um, if I remember correctly, in the entire first two episodes, and I might be wrong here, but I think there's only two morphs. Um, and it would be, let me think now, um, Tobias morphed into a hawk for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, Jake morphs into the dog. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The paw and change. Yeah. I think I, th- I could be wrong, but, um, yeah. So that was, that was the one thing. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm glad to you guys, it wasn't that big of a deal and that other things made up for it because certainly uh, when I look back on it, I mean, I was saying to, to Alex, I hope it's, uh, you were young enough to kind of scared you a little bit, you know, you're, yeah. you're imagining yourself Ooh, uh, you're playing some video games and then you decide to go walking along some road uh, and your dog runs off. And the next thing you know, you see this alien you know, craft crash, and you know, I guess you're compassionate enough to say, "Hey, you know, there's an injured person there that's just or thing that's just come down the ramp." I mean, I look at that and I go, "Wow!" I mean, I, if I was a kid, I'd be like, "I'd want to run away from this." But these kids, <laughs> they uh, they swear a pact, they touch the glowing cube, and everything. It's like it's quite a pact to make. But they made some decisions um, early on there with. Um, the way things were going to happen. And um, I feel a few of us felt that the biggest mistake they might have made um, technically was changing special effects companies, the creature companies Ooh. from, mm-hmm. uh, they used a company called Caligari, which I had never heard of before. And they did good stuff. But there's something about, there needed to be, you know, personality in some of these creatures. And I don't uh-huh. think they're there. They kind of look like, rubbery monsters and i had come from um goosebumps where a guy named ron Ron stefanik and fantastic fantastic creations did all the monsters on that and they are just legendary for being creepy responsive whatever yeah their chance to use him but people weren't happy with ron because i think maybe he charged a little too much or he Mm. tended to come to the absolute last minute and there was no changes allowed but they specifically chose another company for that. That was that was one of the mistakes I think they made. Another mistake, as I said before, is, is they didn't have the ability to show all the creatures in, in one uh, shot. Um, uh, and some of the other stuff they did was miniatures, and you can't get a lot of creation and sort of a lot of uh, expression in them. So all those things okay. on my part took away from it a little bit. But I don't want to go too much into its negatives because 
there's some pretty positive stuff in there too. Uh, as I say, um, yeah, it's dark. It's, they're out, you know, they're watching all the stuff, and uh, then they're realizing that they're these sort of creatures walk amongst them. They're what do they call them? They're called controllers. Yes. Of course, one of them ends up being a teacher at the school. Chap with the uh, with the shiny boots, always uh, <laughs> rubbing. <laughs> Which is a kind of a boots. big moment, but which had take us to the end of, of I guess, the first uh, episodes. But um, now, here's what Ron Oliver again said to to me and to others is that he felt the mistake they made in Animorphs is that they should have been on the run then, like they should have just left. But instead, they stay home and they stay living, and they didn't do that. And um, I know Ron said if he would have been involved sooner uh, in making some of the decisions, he would have taking those sort of creative uh, licenses to say, no, this would be better if they were sort of more disrupted by being on the run all the time. And I think he also would have had different things to say about how the Andalites looked and the Yerks looked and all that. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know, on the run, that would be an interesting take. And that's that's very much where the book series goes at its end, right? Like the last dozen or so books that is their status quo yeah we we've talked kind of a lot between movie adaptations and there's a comic book adaptation that uh chris grine who is on here occasionally uh sort of unofficial host at this (laughs) point uh is working on but one of the things we always have trouble imagining is like what medium will actually get to the end of the story? Like, how do they handle the end of the book? So the idea of the idea of a show starting there, starting with that on the run status quo is super interesting to me. Oh, that would be, yeah. So I do actually have, um, you, you mentioned working with miniatures and, and different uh, varieties of mediums, but like the actual andalites that come on screen, those are costumes, people in a costume, or are they puppets? Because I can um, never tell. Some of them, I think there's a mix of both. Okay. If I remember correctly, um, some of the stuff where they're coming down the ramp of the spaceship was a uh, was a little puppet. I remember uh, they spent a lot of time on that, and it didn't really involve me that much. Um, and they, I don't think were happy with that. And they then ordered a, um, a full size one, which they then used for, for closer shots and, uh, for a bunch of other stuff too. I mean, it literally needs to sort of roll over and sort of look wounded and stuff. And, um, I guess these are all decisions that are made, um, because it's just not working for them. And I think we need to sort of come back to that a bit in that, um, why didn't it go longer? Why didn't Animorphs become a really successful series? Uh, one of the things was that it, you know, they there weren't enough of, of them, the changing effects for for people. Um, I don't know how great some of the performers on the show were. I can tell you that of of the five kids that were on it, only Sean Ashmore, I think, to this day is an actor. Um, the other kids kind of didn't become big um, stars. I think Brooke Nevin's still Brooke Nevin as well. Yeah. Is around. But she does like Hallmark <laughs> movies and things like that. That's that's right. Um I mean I know Boris Cabrera, he's from uh 
South Central LA and uh, he he went back there uh, and he's works as a personal trainer there. Um, That's and, for her. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was hard. I mean, I think everybody wanted to go longer that show, and um, I, I it didn't. Um, it just in some ways it didn't work, and and we we sort of knew it wasn't working, unfortunately, and there wasn't much we could do to help because there's certain things we couldn't change. I mean, the Hawk with Tobias, I mean, he always had to have the, um, the things on his legs. And I remember one time somebody said to me, why does he always have these things on his legs? And it's because they couldn't trust that the Hawk wouldn't just fly away and go right. back to freedom. So he always was tethered, even when he was not supposed to be like the part of the story that he's flying around Tobias free. You know, he was tethered and, you know, things like that. Um, there's another funny thing that I do recall, and that has to do with the cat. When Brooke um, morphed into the cat, um, you remember that part? Yeah. Um, if, I don't know how he did this, but the, Brian, the animal trainer for that is a gentleman named Brian Renfro. And he somehow managed to give himself a frontline credit. So that means at the beginning of the show, it says Adam <laughs> trained by Brian Renfro. So that guy, anyway, but he, I remember being in this meeting where this cat had to do all these things in this script. I'm using this script. It's going to say, like, Fritz the Wonder Cat to pull all this <laughs> off. And he calmly said, Yeah, you know what? Cats, cats are not easily trained animals. He says, um, They can't do much more than come to you, they'll stop. They won't stop on the ground. They'll stop if they're up on a box or something. If they're perched, they'll stay. And then they'll leave. And that's pretty much all they'll do. If you do watch, you, you know, you'll see the cat. It does that. It goes up on this stupid box and it, it waits there for a while. And like, um, but he knew his animals really well, Brian Renfro. And actually, I will say I knew him quite well because I'd worked with him before. And he, he was very, very good. Man, he's a, a Vietnam veteran, oh, wow. uh, American, but living in Toronto. And uh, I met him on a show called Rin Tin Tin Canine Cop, where he uh, <laughs> he trained uh, the dog there. And they had, uh, you know, several dogs that were very nice. And they had one dog that was not nice at all. Oh. And when that dog came around, you couldn't look at that dog. You couldn't say a word to that dog. That just that dog came on. And it would attack whatever the rubber dummy was that was supposed to be the bad guy. And it would rip the shreds out of the top. <laughs> I stood there. And then um, uh, if it would leave. And, and here's the part that I thought was interesting. If the guy had to get away, like it was not going to be the end point of the show with the, uh, with the dog, and then the guy would, or whatever the dummy would get away, and the dog would not have a feeling of satisfaction. So they always then would cut and Brian would go in and he would play that man and he would let uh, the dog attack him uh, with the padded stuff on just to get the dog's aggression out and let the dog understand that you did win. I mean, he doesn't have to know that the guy gets away here, right? He just knows there's something wrong where he's gone to attack. This is all the dog's mentality. But, you know, this is how much, how well he knew animals, I guess. He was a really good man to have on for Animorphs, if you ask me. It sounds it like Brian it. Renfro, yeah. yeah. How much? How much did having animals on set and working with animals affect what you did with 
building and designing props were there any times where you had to accommodate it's for terrible. animals it's terrible animals is absolutely it's <laughs> terrible along with children okay it was uh it was it was quite uh, a rough a lot of the times um and i think they quite quickly realized that and i you know I, actually the question you talked about was technically they knew a lot about technically and everything was sort of in, in you know uh designed around that and i'll get to that in a minute but a lot of the times they would just go okay and now oh the cat is supposed to react to this and and pick up the uh the bomb and defuse it or whatever I'm <laughs> um and so they just go we're gonna we're, we're gonna save that for a second unit we'll just move on and they'll get it later and that's what a lot of times they did was they just pushed it off to be filmed later and these things started to get, pile up and pile up and pile up and you have to sort of come to conclusion but I think it was written, they started to write things differently going that, no, it should be the dog a lot more and it should just be animals, like the horses as well. Uh, stuff that's easy to train that we can just do. And so it became a bit more of that. But um, uh, the other thing that they did early on in terms of design was um, when you work with animals, all the sets have to be different. The camera angles tend to be lower with an animal because you sort of have to be below a dog who's certainly going to be three feet lower than a human being. So a lot of the sets were designed to have animals in them. So they, they built more up of them than they usually would for those days. I remember that being part of the discussions was that all these sets have to be animal friendly. And remember the camera angle is going to be a lot lower to look up and see, uh, you'll see more than you might in the, where it's all adults. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I, but I'd worked with animals a lot before, um, so um, I was your guy. I was your man for that. Um, you know, at that stage, I mean, even though that was 20 something years ago, I'd, I'd been a props man for about you know, eight or 10 years and I knew my stuff. And uh, um, the nice thing about working in children's television, though, for the most part, was that it was nice short hours and uh, pretty <laughs> easy going. But Animorphs was different. As I say, it was very difficult. The, uh, we filmed a good part of that at night. Um, outside at this abandoned power plant and it was cold at nights and it was kind of a an awful place to be and it was, it was rough for me but imagine you're a kid say you're 13 years old have were you up all night acting like for night after i bet you they had never done that before and it was very oh, no. difficult for them but perhaps it did help in some ways you know with yeah. the performances but i uh, do you remember the, the director timothy bond um I, I had known him before. Uh, he was on, um, he directed uh, Goosebumps, The Haunted Mask, which is probably, I think, to a lot of people's opinion, it would be their the scariest episode or one of their most famous episodes. Uh, I was about so, to say, I just got a chill. Like, I don't, I couldn't. <laughs> there you go. Just, you know, don't put that rubber mask it, on. Yes, don't put that I, rubber mask on. Exactly. Just do not, because if it fits really well, it might never come off. Um, oh. But uh, when they brought him out, I knew it was going to be. You know, challenging. I mean, but this was a man who was really good at making actor decisions about how an actor would play something. He was brought into a role where he had to decide how the whole look of the series was going to be. And um, I don't think he was the right man for that. I don't think they chose the right director uh, to um, do the first two episodes because... There's too many crucial decisions that were being made that he 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 wasn't gonna be around to see the sort of the significance of those and realize the limitations of those. So 
that was that was the thing about uh, Timothy was that he probably shouldn't have been there. And I know that again, I just because I've I've heard a couple of interviews with Ron Oliver where he uh, did some of the later episodes and he befriended the kids and he sort of brought about a different sort of culture to Animorphs than Timothy had brought around. For example, Timothy Bond had suggested that all actors should have carry all their scripts with them at all times. That's a lot to carry around and put in a binder. And um, yeah, you know, um, and also they had made a decision that those poor kids wouldn't get their own chair, would have their name on the back. And I think what? if you're on a TV series, that'd be the first thing you'd want. And I remember them specifically deciding, I'm not saying Timothy here was somebody else, but somebody else saying, no, you know, we shouldn't do that, whatever. And these poor kids, they kept asking and asking, and I had to say no. I mean, they just gave them folding plastic chairs, but eventually oh somebody made the decision for them to get um, the chairs with their names on the back. And then I, my okay. job as a prop master is to facilitate that. And I'll remember, I'll never forget the time when we brought them out. It was at the Bowmanville Zoo. We set them all up. These kids were so happy. <laughs> they finally had their names on the chairs. Nobody else could sit in them. And so on. But it was a lot more work. But anyway, I, in a way, it was sort of worth it. I mean, yeah. these poor kids, um, you know, it, it was tough for them. As I say, some of them working at night in a strange country. They were Americans being brought up here. I mean, it's a very, very tough position to be put in for these kids. So it probably would have benefited from having him as like a do the you know, season finale or something rather than setting the, the, the full tone of a series. I, yeah, I think. I think they should have probably brought in Ron Oliver to um, to do it, but he was doing something else. And um, Ron Oliver, I um, mean, he took, if you've seen Goosebumps, you know, again, it started one way. And when Ron Oliver came in, he changed it. He had a lot more sort of very unique characters, very off the wall stuff going on. Um, Count Camp Night Moon was the first time I worked with uh, Ron Oliver. He took Goosebumps in a different direction. And then, after the writers left from that show, uh, um, the original writers, Ron Oliver wrote, I think, all pretty much all the final scripts of that and directed them as well. And all I will say, I love Ron. He's a great guy, but he took it in a different direction. That's where you get sort of the goofier episodes, like how I got my shrunken head. And uh, I, see. I think it's called Deep, Deep Trouble, um, which I don't think are their best episodes. Um, they're quirky. You know, you got the in, in Shrunken Head, you've got the Elvis guy flying in the airplane and stuff going out of Ballador and stuff. But, you know, if you compare that to, say, some of the early season one Goosebumps episodes, like, um, uh, I, I don't know if, and I, we shouldn't be talking about it too much. I know we should be talking about Animal Horse, but. No, no, no. Um, no, no please. Fine. The girl, yeah. who, the girl Who Cried Monster is one of my favorite episodes from that because. It it basically the girl goes right to the library and right away there's this monster that eats bugs in front of her, you know, and, and nobody believes her. And then the, this teacher who turns into a monster comes to her house. Um and I I thought that was scary. And uh the haunted mask, scary stuff. Um there's a lot of stuff that we did. And then, you know, Ron Oliver came in and I think some of the what I was gonna say, one of the final things I was gonna say in terms of how Animorphs affected us was that I definitely felt that money was taken away from Goosebumps because we were filming Goosebumps oh, okay. and we were doing Animorphs and put towards Animorphs because it was costing them more. And so, whereas was, we had all the money in the world, say, you know, season one, season two of Goosebumps, where we did like Terror Tower, you know, oh, stuff okay. like that. Yeah. Big stuff. All of a sudden, there wasn't 
that money there. So a lot of times you just rotate around one or two sort of of Ron Stefanik's not his best stuff monster wise being a big part of it. And I just thought that it went in a different direction, unfortunately. And that, you know, that, that's what I'll say about that. So in some ways, Animorphs was a bit of, um, let's say this, they knew Goosebumps had run its course. I don't think, I don't think they made that right decision creatively. It was just that, that portal where they were going to have R.L. Stein's access and they picked over the best books that time had come. And they said, you know, we know this This is coming to an end. We're going to try a new thing now. It's going to be Animorphs. We should put all our attention towards that. Um, and the result of that was that the last few ep- episodes of Goosebumps, I didn't think were the best one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, okay. on the other hand, all my episode, all my attention was being put towards prepping two shows at once, still doing <laughs> but also prepping Animorphs. And so we did that. And... Um, as I say, luckily, we didn't have too much. I didn't have to make a lot of the decisions because there weren't a lot of prompts there. Luckily, it, was, it had to do with the and lights and Caligari's work in that and other things. But I did want to come around to the spinning um, hard drive type yeah. device. I wanted that to ask about yes. that. Yes. That was a prop. And I remember that for whatever reason, there was not enough money to build that the way everybody wanted it to be built. Of course, Everybody wanted it to be amazing, and we couldn't afford that. So we had something that it did all the things they asked for, but it was a little rough looking, and it was also tended not to spin, which is the one thing I wanted to do in my life. <laughs> and so, uh, unfortunately, what happens is when you so the money we had to lay whatever thirteen hundred dollars to build that we built it, brought the set, we used it, and early on it would stop working or whatever. So then we had to take it to somebody else to spend way more money. And I remember really regretting the person that we hired to build that. I should have hired somebody better and just said, no, we need more money for that. So it was built within yeah. budget and then we threw more money at it later. I sort of regretted it. And if I'm not mistaken, they did build better ones for season two, which I wasn't involved with. Okay. I'm curious about that prop in particular, because that is not in the books at all. That was something that was added for the show. How much how much information do you get or did you get for something like that where it's a major change and you are working from scratch and there is no source material to go to for that item? I mean, first of all, that's, that's why there is, a, God bless them, an art department. And they start <laughs> way before me. And uh, that was a gotcha. gentleman named Ian Brock, um, who, who I know quite well again. And He's still around to this day. I think he works on a show called uh, Titans. Oh, cool. Right now as, the art, as a production designer. Oh, wow. um, he's still around. Um, he's a great guy. I've known him a long time. Um, but getting back to your, your question, um, I think there's a great line from Ron Oliver again, the quotable Ron Oliver. And he said that <laughs> with something like this, a book like this, you read the book and then you put the book on a shelf and you don't touch it again. And you sit down and you write the script of how it's going to work out for you. And I would imagine, I don't want to get too into it, but I think that that device allowed them to sort of then be able to communicate with them in a way that would make it easier for all the people to be on the same page with with how they're communicating with them, you know, because a lot of it is done with um, 
where they're not what is it like telepathic uh yeah. communication thought and, speech, uh, right they call right it. thought speech i mean there was a lot to do and i do want to go back again to the problem some people felt with the first two episodes of jake one and two was that they didn't understand what was going on early on like was it portrayed to people that uh Vistra three was appearing as an Andalite, but he didn't always appear as an Andalite. He was actually a Yurk. I mean, did people understand that enough? Because uh, gotcha. it's a very complicated thing to portray, you know. Yeah. Um, when in and, later episodes too, you see him in his human form. Yeah, that's fair. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, you know, and fair enough. But I'm just talking about you know that when you're hitting everybody all with once in the first couple episodes, right? Uh, and I don't know if it was I mean again that was some people's complaints was that they didn't really know what was going on but of course the hardcore Animorphs fans who had read the books by then of course I think would have been a much better place but I mean how many and does anybody know how many copies of that book um, were sold you I know I, I don't find that answer or what the sort of the viewership was at all on, on, on Animorphs the series because um, that would explain a lot I mean you know, Again, I, you have to make decisions. At, at that point, I do know that I've seen at least seven different international covers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that I've come to learn in the past few years is not like a guarantee that your novel will be or book will be published internationally. So, um, I don't know. I've the only thing I can find, <laughs> apparently these numbers aren't really out there. At one point, KA Applegate said that the series as a whole sold, sold over 35 million copies. Wow. Um, and there's someone who says five million for number one. That's not there's no source listed for that. So I mean Big for the time, but yeah, probably not. Probably not huge in the grand scheme of things. And perhaps what they did artistically was they said, "Oh no, this will have to be like the book. We'll have to have a furry blue horsey thing." And you know, maybe uh, somebody just said, "Well, let's appear to a larger audience and let's do away with that and do something else." And I'm I'm just saying that that was that I know was part of uh, the the lament that some of them had about oh if only we would have made better decisions early on um, then perhaps we wouldn't have sort of got this sort of stiff performances out of some of these critters that was the what the show was kind of a, a disdained for. It's 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 interesting to me. I'm rewatching it right like. I have very fond memories of watching the show because I, I was just excited to see it, right? I was young. Right. I wanted it to be good. We've talked about this on the show before. Like, I was just, I was into it. I bought whatever was on screen because I just, I wanted to enjoy it. Uh, I see what you're saying. Like, I, I absolutely get it. I I work in live theater like I, I I know the kind of compromises and decisions we have to make to to get something up in time to stay under budget to do those things. It is like the decision making processes and the the finding solutions 
when you don't have the resources. That's the problem solving that I love. But at the same time, it doesn't always work. Like it's sometimes hard to find that. Well, I'm glad you did say that though, Alex, because you saw it. You were between nine and 11 years old and it did the right things to you, right? Yeah. It wouldn't need to scare you. It made you feel uncomfortable about like, oh my God, what if this really was some of my teachers like, and all that stuff. That's right. what I hope it did. And and if it did that, I, I think all the adults in the room now are reading too much into it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you know, because I mean, we wanted to scare kids. Sorry. Yeah. I, um, Chris came on recently, uh, Chris Grind, and, and talked about how uh, he's only seen, I think, two or three episodes of this now, but I think it was his son sat and watched with him a little bit and uh, got spooked and, you know, and had questions and, and enjoyed it. So I still seems to hold up for kids, I guess. Wishful thinking, maybe. <laughs> well, that, that's good because, you know, as I said, I worked on Goosebumps and uh, I had done you know, four years of that, and then uh, came time to do Animorphs, and it was like, good, more more scaring kids within sort of safe boundaries. I mean, sure. I think it was the same with the Goosebumps shows. There was never any blood. And no yeah. one was killed on screen. You know, it was sort of maybe implied that, oh, because this painting is finished, then she's going to be forever, you know, locked up in the painting, whatever. And what I did like about working on Animorphs was that, again, it was, you know, it was horror or, you know, science fiction, but definitely scary uh, side of science fiction for uh, teens or preteens. And um, you want to scare them, but not scare them too badly, where it's a guy <laughs> right. running around with an axe and right. carrying a severed head or something, right? Um, and my only, I guess my complaint, again, was that when we did Goosebumps, we at, f- at first we did them at night. So the first couple of seasons, uh, when we had um, uh, the first, Brian had the first director of photography, he insisted it all be done at night. But then he left, and everybody's complaint was that we don't like working with kids at night. So the last two seasons of Goosebumps were filmed using day for night. You know, mm. the kids were, we were in at 7.30, we're home by 6.30 pretty much every day after that. Okay. But then Animorphs came in, and it was back to night for night. And as I say, there's a lot of really difficult stuff I felt with the kids. But, I mean, I think in some ways it perhaps helps them if the kids are so disoriented that their night is their day, their days are night. Hey, <laughs> kid, it's 2 in the morning. It's time for your lunch break, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they can throw a kid off, and maybe that's what they wanted to a certain extent. So yeah, I guess that did help. And, um, I mean, you know, pound for pound, you know, those five kids carrying that whole sort of um, idea they're going to have an insurrection or they're going to try and repel this invasion. I mean, it's really, it's heady stuff if you're, I think, at that age watching that going, there's nothing we can't do. And that's what I liked was the message about Animorphs was that, you know, um, we don't need adults in the room here, guys. We got this ourselves. And yeah. I, yeah. I think, I'm sure you probably feel the same way about it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. We're still trying to say that to some people. <laughs> I mean, I was We're training my, my, my kids to go if there's a if there's a you know um, uh, an alien walking down the plank from a spaceship, maybe go and get adult help. But no, these kids took it on themselves to uh, yeah. just swear an allegiance with uh, 
Elfangor. So, I mean, that, that's kind of great in, in a way, but um, I think that's what, what you guys liked about it. And um, I've said what I didn't really like about it. I mean, you know, to tell you the truth, another thing that was hard about, um, and I'm just being sort of uh, pickier because when we did Goosebumps, it was an anthology. So everyone was a little movie. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, it was, mm-hmm. and those kids didn't have to have their name on the chair backs because they're gone. And a new kid's going to come in that we'll have for a week and he's gone. And so we got really used to that. And all of a sudden, it really sort of dawned on all of us. These kids are going to be here maybe for five years, maybe for 10 years, maybe for, you know, for sure a couple of years. And it got hard to sort of remember what was happening from one series to the next. Oh, when did they discover this? Or, you know what I mean? It just gets a lot more difficult to sort of stay on, on top of things. Uh, and that was the difficult part about doing Animorphs was that um, – we were so used to doing an uh, an anthology, and this was going to be something where, you know, it's it basically the same characters week after week doing different stuff. And, you know, the cat would be brought in again to perch on this little box or crate or whatever again and, and leave. <laughs> and then later on, there'd be something, oh, let's get a horse, because I think it's a little easier to deal with than a tiger. And uh, things like that were made. But, you know, um, as I say, um, that was sort of my involvement in it, in it as a props man. And I, I wish I could have sort of helped you more in terms of how things are done um, at the uh, at the level. But a lot of, it was a lot of the same people. I will say that. I mean, it was done by protocol. It was Deborah Forte was the producer, same as Goosebumps. Bill Siegler, his name is in the credits, uh, same as on Goosebumps. Lena Cordina, production manager, same. Um, so they really threw all they had at Animorphs that first season. Uh, all they could and um, they sort of sat there and went oh well this isn't really working so it went two years and then that was it protocol was done they pulled out of uh, where where they were working and it was all over but I was glad to have been there for four years I did uh, four years working with protocol and they were very very um, an important part of my life Um, I remember specifically that um, one of the things about when you work in television series is that you never really are invited back for season two. I mean, there each season is a separate thing, and it, you know you're off for months and months between one season and the next. But I remember when I worked on Goosebumps that Lena Cordina, who's a production manager, she always said to me, "Okay, Alan, we'll be off for only a few months. We'll see you for season two. And she Aww. said that to me four years, and I'm really grateful she did because that made me decide to buy a house in Toronto at the time. And I bought the house, if I'm not mistaken, in 1998. Okay. And so um, that was in a very pivotal time in my life because I don't think I would have been on that show working with them year after year. I don't think I would have bought this house. And I still live in this house in Toronto, which is a very, very expensive city to live in. So (laughs) thank God for, for Lena saying that and for them trusting me and for having me and and that's why I knew they I knew they wanted me. They asked a lot for me. They asked for me to take my time from um Goosebumps, set up Animorphs, get it all running, and then to have my normal assistant, a lady named um Jill Bedford, take over as the prop master after I left. And that's what we did. And she was not as experienced as I was, but she'd been with me all those years on Goosebumps. But more importantly, the thought was that 
Well, at this point, the show will be up and running. All the props sure. will have been built, and it'll sort of just carry on its own. And I think it did. So, yeah. Uh, and then I went back and I finished off all the goosebumps. And I remember when we did the very last goosebumps, like I looked around and like nobody in the room even knew the significance of the moment. We were filming the very last scene of Goosebumps, and everybody had pretty much changed. They were all in the animorphs now. So mm. oh, I was wow. still on the bumps because that was thought would be the best use for me. And I remember I looked around and said, you guys didn't even realize this is like, this is the last ever episode of Goosebumps filming right now. And involved, uh, it was deep trouble. It was that involved that puffer fish that was shooting out the quills. <laughs> and and I, it's a little lame. <laughs> I'm going, I, I started to question my life at this point. Um, oh no. <laughs> no, there were actually there were some great times in my life, and of course, working there. Well, of course, you got to work with uh, Sean Ashmore, and of course, I think he's he turned out to pretty, be a pretty big deal, you know, in, in terms of an actor. I also please, working on that tell sort of me Goosebumps with... scene, Pratt. I worked with some other big stars to be. Um, I guess Ryan Gosling being one of them. He was in oh, cool. Goosebumps, and. Um, what a kid! I, I love his name is Dixie now. He was he went on to be in some Star Wars uh, movies. Um, the, Hayden sort of the, Christensen. Hayden Christensen. That's right. Okay. So I did run across a few big stars to be on the way, and as I say, Sean was another one that was pretty clear early. And if you really look at the first episode or two, there, I mean, it, it's portrayed as him telling the story. Jake is telling the story. Sean Ashmore is telling the story. And I think that's because they knew he was perhaps the best actor or the most experienced actor. And, you know, to have somebody like maybe Boris Cabrera, Marco tell that story. There's something when I look at that, you know, Boris, Boris is doing his best, but he's sort of like, he's, he's not giving the intensity. Like when the, when that aircraft crashes there, he's sort of, he's flipping it in a couple of lines. And that was the best they could get out of that kid. You know, so it was very important, I think, the acting in some of that. Um, and again, with Goosebumps, it was famous for having some sort of lame act- actors, you know, <laughs> barely able to act. But then they're gone, and, and they're not back week after week after week. And, uh, you know, right. again, so maybe some of the casting decisions they made there, they regretted. I just want to leave it at that, because everybody was trying as hard as they could. Um, but, um yeah, as I say, Sean and I guess um, Brooke were the two... Um, Sort of good actors in that, and I think they did. They they worked with them a bit more than they they did with some of the others, just because they knew that you know it's it's pivotal to have these kids, you know, really um, convincingly portray the environment they're in, where you know you can't be you have to be it has to overtake the whole performance. It's like we're being invaded by aliens, guys. It could be anywhere. <laughs> Right. Let's get serious. Let's look scared about what's going on. And I just would go on like, oh, man. They're just like, you don't get it, kid. Anyway, I don't want to say these, these kids. And I don't think I was the only one. I wasn't the director on it. But um, but still, though, as I say, um, you know, coming back to it, it was a great time in my life. I really enjoyed working on that show, working with young kids. The egos weren't that too big. They weren't that big. Um, we did have some, you know, some scary moments there, as I say, with uh, lions and tigers and things. But um, on the other hand, um, everybody was working to make sure that all the kids were safe all the time and they're happy. And I know that, um, as I say, it was a really, really nice time in my life, actually. And, and I, 
I've been around for over 35 years now. And uh, at that time, working for Protocol, we did three television series out of there, Dear America, uh, Anna Morris, and Goosebumps. Um, those are some of the happiest times of my life. They really were. That's awesome. And I wish I had more memorabilia of it. And I looked around <sighs> for things they might have. But I did send you that one um, photograph of a little promotional card I have. I'm yeah. going to send you another one, which it's not much, but it's um, it's it was the at least to give you a little. It would say production vehicle. They'd stick it in your your props truck so that um, you were allowed to be waved through by the police officer to get to the <laughs> closed off power plant or whatever. Uh, so I do cool. have a picture of that. And I've asked Jill Bedford, who took over for me, if she might have some things. She lives in Hamilton, and she's not on um, social media as much as me, but she might have some stuff. I thought I might have more scripts and stuff, but I just don't. I don't know why. I wish I would have kept more of things in hindsight. Oh, from that's, the show. that's so cool. So you did not keep the Andalite puppets. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so they were made by Caligari. Um, and I didn't really know much about them, but I did know re- Ron Stefanik really well from, from Goosebumps. And you know, what actually what happened with him was that his deal was that he kept all the creatures. Really? It belonged to him. It was is what he called rent. No, it was buy buy to rent or something crazy <laughs> like that. Where they would pay the entire Smart. price to have it made, but then he owned it. And but he had them all in his factory, which is in sort of East Toronto. And even it was in a, even like in a hidden door because this stuff was worth a lot of money. I think at that time. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. It wasn't really built Probably to this last though. Too. I'll get to that. But I remember that yeah he. You you would have this sort of fake door that would slide. It was a it was a bookcase and slide, and they were all there. But it smelled because again, these were one offs that a guy wore sometimes for days, <laughs> and they smeared all kinds of slime on them. Oh yeah. And so to look at them five or ten years later, I mean, a lot of them were kind of falling apart and smelling a bit. So yeah. uh, I know he doesn't have that place anymore. But um, again, where did this stuff go? And that is. One of the questions that I did actually, you you put out on Twitter, like, uh, where did some of the stuff go? Things that I don't know, but the place you have to look is what happened to Caligari if they're still around. Okay. Uh, do they have a uh, if they still have a shop? Because they do have a shop. A lot of times they tend to keep some of the stuff there on a shelf, saying, "Oh yeah, that's something we did all those years ago." So that'd be a good place to look for your andalite or your um, yerk. amazing um yeah so if they decided i think stranger things has shown us that we can probably get away with like a kid's sci-fi thing for four seasons before age really kind of becomes an issue so if they decided to go all in on an animorphs show on like a netflix or hulu would you call up immediately and be like, I want in on this? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, well, uh, funny thing is I work for Hulu right now. I work on The Handmaid's Tale, but um, I'm not the prop master and I don't, uh, I'm not, don't work as a props master anymore. Okay. To an extent, I'm just being honest, uh, prop master is a young man's game. I mean, when I did that series, I was in my 30s. I'm now in my 60s. And, um, you know, I was proud to say at the time, you know, maybe it was a simpler time, um, but, you know, a lot of that stuff I carried in my head. I mean, 
I could just remember what we need for the whole day and just pull right. it right out. Nowadays, I would need complicated notes and have to look at it with my reading glasses on and <laughs> and so on. So um, I'm glad I did that when I was in my 30s. But I want to start a new series or re it for the, you know, the 21st century. No, I think I'm a bit past that. <laughs> but I'm quite happy to work as a lead man, uh, a lead set dresser on television series The Handmaid's Tale. I've been doing that for the last uh, little while. I'm looking to do that forward to doing that in season five. Oh, and, cool. Um, I still, I'm still at it. I, I do want to retire in about three or four years, but I'm still out there every day um, trying to uh, enjoy my time in the film and television industry in Toronto, which is where Goosebumps and, of course, Anna Morse were, uh, were filmed. That's incredible. And I do say filmed because those were all shot on film. Um, in the in the day, video wasn't really used. It just um, there's a lot of limitations to it, including the fact that the the, the lights had to be very bright. They tend mm. to look very flat. So all that stuff was shot on film, which gave you a much higher contrast ratio. Which meant that after maybe a couple of f stops, it just basically dropped away to blackness. And so all of that stuff was shot on film and immediately transferred to tape and all edited and everything in post was done on tape but they were actually shot on film and i mentioned that because it made things a lot more complicated looking back on it there's no digital cameras so for example all the continuity photos that we had to take as props people and the set dressers and so on um you had to take them with polaroid cameras mm. and then you got a little oh, wow. thing this big that you had to look at you know because if you want to match up like all the debris stay from the um the, the smashed up uh, alien spacecraft that they're getting you know, pissed off. Why is this taking so much time to clean this up? Um, that involves setting up the same pieces, taking them away, repeatedly putting them back. And um, as I say, from our point of view, shooting, looking back and shooting them with, on little Polaroids for continuity would have been, it's laughable now because you can shoot 50 shots with your digital camera, no problem. Um, and the other thing is that we're shooting it on film which means that film is a lot more difficult. Like it would have been shot on 16 millimeter film, if I remember correctly. The total running time for a 400 footer of film is 11 minutes and four seconds. And then you've got camera reload, which takes several minutes. Um, and so wow. um, there's a lot of very limitations and they, they go, you want to go again? That means we've got to reload the cameras. And, be, and so I think a lot of decisions were made about, oh, we got to move on because it's mm -hmm. film. And now I still work in the medium of drama or television. And now it's all digital and they can run all night, baby. <laughs> they don't have to reload. And right. so there are changes. Like, I mean, I have literally seen people go where, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to be the editor that has to see this because this is going to be a print, okay? <laughs> Take one is going to be, they walk in the room, you know, Hi, uh, this is this is uh, the the Andalites are coming, whatever. And then the director will go, no, no, just go out again, come in and say it, but look this way towards the camera. Still rolling, keep rolling, and they will do that. And they'll keep going and going, and you'll hear the director's you know cues on the tape, and then they'll say, okay, cut, moving on. Well, that was a fifteen-minute take one. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> that's oh. the way it's done now. Oh. And that's, yeah. that's the one thing. But I think all the all the great films of all time were shot on film, where there were these limitations. And you know, nowadays 
I guess my biggest complaint is that, like, you ever see a Hitchcock film and, like, there'll be a two shot of two characters talking for half of the scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. And nowadays, the, the style is that they'll go over somebody's shoulders, right? Cut back and forth between the two. There'll be all these different cuts. That's the modern style. Is it any better? You know, we do that now because it's sort of become the editor's rule in what the direct they tell the directors what they, they think they'll need. And also that there's plenty of time to film it all now because you're not losing every 10 minutes of running or 11 minutes and four seconds. You're not losing three, four, or five minutes to camera reload. And so uh, film is done a different way now or taping, I mean, it's in a different way. Um, and so I'm, a lot of the stuff that I worked on, use bumps, Animorphs, Dear America, all shot on film, all of these limitations. And I think, um, as I say, there is a different look to them. There's different styles that, that type of film slash TV making. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's almost to the point now where when you have those long shots, um, it's feels revolutionary or like really well done or, you know, and like a big moment because of all the choppiness of conversations and things. So it's almost full circle coming. Yeah. I I remember there was that oh sorry go ahead no no please please go i was just gonna say i remember there was the uh there was a fight in an episode of daredevil that was just like one shot one static shot at the end of a hallway with him running through these doors and these ninjas jumping around i remember the internet going crazy for it because oh here's one still shot but it's exactly what you just said it's yeah that used to be the 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 law of the land I I personally I don't think as I say I've I've said what I wanted to say about how I think editors literally tell directors what they think they need nowadays and it always seems to take it from every angle uh, imaginable and I think if I was a director you know I wish I would have been one <laughs> um, I would uh, do oneers more often I would just say maybe every day if I've got eight scenes this one scene would be good as a oneer but let me just because they can save you time you know. Mm-hmm. It's something yeah. where there's some dialogue and the camera should come around and then see the other guy and then be off do it because you know it actually doesn't take away at all sometimes it adds and the worst mistake i see that happens with directors is that they get forced to do a scene as a oneer because they've spent too much time on other crap that they could have done as a oneer but now mm-hmm. it's too late now some they're forced into in something they want to do as a oneer but it's too late but i actually did want to come around to something uh with you, Alice, because you work in theater, correct? Yes. Now, I, I've never worked in theater, but I have done a couple of things where adaptations from theater. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw one out that I remember right off the top of my head. It's, it's called Sister Mary Explains It All. And it's something that I did. It's, it was with Diane Keaton and a bunch of other pretty big actors, actually. It didn't do very well, but anyway... Do get a chance if you do have a look at that. That was based on a stage play, uh, which we adapted for television, and a lot of it takes place in inside of a, a shootout in in a, in a church. <laughs> but anyway, um, yes. Um, what what I wanted to mention about that was that that was done for the first time ever for me. It was done as like theater, where they would do long periods as one take. You know, because that's the way they wanted it to be. These are all stage actors. Yeah. And 
holy cow, I found it difficult because <sighs> propping for that type of work is very demanding. Um, because every, like here we were doing like every night's opening night where, oh no, we have to have the gun back in the drawer and mm-hmm. the cookies have to be reset. <laughs> and there's, remember there's huge resets that had to happen at the end of every take there. They're mind boggling. Uh, and I hadn't sort of anticipated that. So I think after when people started saying to me, you know, and I had to say, it's like, you don't understand. It's like a stage play this opening night. Don't you get it? You know? <laughs> and, um, I, I feel I this so I, much. <laughs> I wrote out all the prop changeovers and I had them all in a book because I was naive. I was a TV guy where, you know, one and it's done, you know, like you build the set today. You film on it tomorrow and you rip it down the day after. That's typical. <laughs> yeah. You work on something. I have a lot of respect for people that work in theater. Right? So I want to tell you that. That's well, thank you. That's yeah, it's, it's, so I work in stage management mostly. That is where most of my paid professional work is, at least. And we, before the first rehearsal, I hit up my props designer and ask, hey, what are your props? Because we're the ones responsible for those resets every night. And I will have, I mean, I've got shows with simple plots and then I'll have shows where it's like, okay, we have finished up a performance. Let's take half an hour tonight and reset it so we don't have to do it tomorrow. And it's Excel sheet after Excel sheet of, okay, this prop goes to here and here's where it moves between these scenes because it's got to come back on. Or, hey, can we get two or three of these so we don't have to move them? That's my favorite question, because then <laughs> the less I've got to move a prop around, the more we can just have extras tucked away, the easier life is. Well, that, I, you know, as I say, I totally uh, got it after that. And I guess the other time I did work on a stage play was I did uh, the reshoot of um, the remake of Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, the one with uh, Courtney, or sorry. Uh, oh, the, the one, uh, the live one that was on TV? Yes, that's right. Oh, that's so oh, cool. I, I watched that. That was so fun. It was still fun. And um, the funny thing is, I'd seen that movie so many times. And I'd even seen the stage play that I was a real expert suddenly on it. Um, and <laughs> I remember the funny thing that happened was uh, they had, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He's a great singer. He sings for Queen now. I, Adam Lambert. was Adam Lambert, name. yeah. He was yes. Riff Raff? Uh, that's no. right. And was he? he the way, uh, uh, oh, I think. Or was he Rocky? I thought he was Rocky. I think he was Rocky. That's right. Uh, the way me, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way it was made was that he would have done, he would have sunk because he, his lips opened it up with Michael Rennie's cheer, you know. Yeah. They wanted just to get that, right? But first of all, weeks, months before, they filmed that in a soundstage. Um, and he would have had the words on a prompter in front of him. Well, it comes time where they want to film it up close. Um, uh, his lips moving it, and they've got his, his face is all painted black. His lips are red, and he forgets the words. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know the words. He, you know, he, he he didn't live like I did as a, you know, seeing that movie week after week after week. So right, <laughs> he was he was in a chair. He needed to be strapped into a chair, almost like a dental thing. He couldn't move, so. They actually strapped him around the head like that. And he strapped oh him my around gosh. Here. Oh. And um, well, I said, well, what if I change things? I've got to move some stuff out of the way so you can see. We've got to give him cue cards. 
And so <laughs> I remember Robert Shipman, who was the props master at that time, we sat out and wrote two cards out for Adam Lambert to have all the words uh, they were the earth was, and he told us where we stand and Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear and uh, we did it until we got it. I remember the nicest thing is I didn't even really know who Adam Lambert was at the time. I think he's a great singer and he's a mm-hmm. really great guy because he came up to me later and he, on and he said, listen, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, that's so, awesome. That's okay. That's what we do for you. You know, it's part of my job. That's good to hear. Yeah, that's not how much that relates to uh, animorphs, but I don't care. I love it. To working, uh, <laughs> working in in theater and uh, sort of yeah, being reactive. A lot of what we do as props people is you're being reactive. You're dealing with something that doesn't maybe work out quite right, um, and you have to sort of maybe change things for take two or take three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on a production of Heather's right now, and our props designer has like sourced original or replicas of the the same like Seven Eleven cups or remade the Seven Eleven cups oh, from the movies, and found like as many as many versions of like old bottles and things like that as are in the movie as he possibly could, just to throw in all those extra layers of reference and just Easter eggs, Easter eggs for people who grew up on the film yeah yep that's, that's a big part you know if you're if you're gonna be a prop master and you want it you have to do your research and you have to get the right stuff for the time period i mean uh, i think anna morrison and pretty much every goosebumps with veil took place in 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 present day but um i've done other things uh where like i worked on uh i was a prop master on uh, my big fat greek wedding and oh, wow. uh, you know, I was thrilled actually because um, I had always wanted to work in movies. You know, I didn't, I didn't dream of working in television when I was sort of in those formative years. I dreamed of working in in movies, uh, but I found myself stuck in television. But yet, I thought I was doing really good work in television, and so I wanted to, to do movies. But in order to do that, I need to move from one union to the other. Because mm. when I did Bombs uh, <sighs> and Animorphs, I was in uh, Nabet which is a Canadian sort of union that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, we didn't do movies there. Um, but the, the union that did was called IATSE. Um, and they were, they were a local, different union and everything. And so I phoned them. And I phoned them all the time. And there's a lady there <laughs> at the receptionist. And she used to say to me, we have all the props people we need. And she would hang up on me. <laughs> and this happened for, wow. for years. For years, and it's, it's, she's famous for doing this, you know, to all the great up-and-coming prop masters. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> finally, in 1998, um, things changed, and they started phoning me and wanting. Ooh. <laughs> and so I actually left Nabet right after what, one of the last things I did was uh, was Goosebumps '98 and uh, season one of Animorphs. Um, I, I left uh, Nabet and I joined IATSE. And a couple of years later, I found myself thrown in to do um, uh, My Big Factory Wedding. And on that, there was Windex bottles from the 1960s. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Oh, my gosh. And it's for a movie. And it meant a big deal to me. So I really, really took it all very seriously. And there's a company in L.A. called History for Hire. 
and I phoned them and I got them involved in all kinds of things. And I'm so grateful for them for all, help, all the help they give me. But the funny thing is that we got a period Windex bottle where the father using that scene put Windex on it. But yeah. I think there's another scene where he's washing his car and he demanded at that time, the trigger was this thing where you should push down on the thing with your index finger like this and squirt out. That's what we provided for him. And I'd spent a lot of money bringing that. <laughs> and then he said, I don't want that kind. I want the kind like we have now, the red thing where you pull it and you, you're getting your whole wrist involved. <laughs> and, I, and I remember I, I went in horror and outrage to the director and I said, um, he wants this. And he said, well, you better get it then. And I said, but it's going to be wrong for your prison. I don't care. He says, do you have it? I said, yeah, I have it. It's right. Just give me a minute. So I went and got it. And of all the things in that movie, whenever somebody complains, it's about that change of the <laughs> bottle. Of course. Oh, of course. There to the present. And it just really, it's one of these things. It's like, I don't like doing it either. Like, you know, but that's kind of what you have to do. Like another big thing that we do a lot of times is like beer cans. And I think you wouldn't even realize that. But, you know, if you want to get Elvis drinking from a beer can, it's a totally different type of manufactured beer can than mm -hmm. the ones we get now. The kind right. of beer cans we have now are two-sided beer cans. They're sort of, they take a piece of metal and they just punch it out. And that forms the bottom and the sides and they just put a top on. Okay. Can. But all the old cans you see in all the great movies, they're three-sided cans. They're made as a tube. And then the bottom was pushed on, they're filled, and the bottom was pushed on. And the top, was not any of those modern triggers like they have now. They were either used a, a, a bottle opener, a can opener, sorry, or they had a pull tab that you sort of pulled and threw away. And that stuff's oh. really hard to get. If you're going to do it right, it costs money. That brings mm -hmm. back to history for hire. And what's starting to bother me, and that's why I got out of being props, especially on some of these period pieces, is that they go, well, I don't care. Just get me a regular can. And I go, no. Yeah, like my name is going to be on the credits here. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, and be like, I'm not going to spend thousand dollars on cans from L.A. And I'd be like, you know, you know that sort of stuff would kind of, would kind of bug me after a while. People would, would ask me to do that, and I just didn't agree. I mean, just recently did something where, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into a great detail, but this thing is that they're supposed to be recording this band that nobody's heard before. And I read it, the script, and it's 1962. And I said, well, then it's going to have to be a small reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And so blah, blah, blah. And so to my horror, uh, the props people show up to film it, and they have a cassette, a very early cassette player. But oh, it's no. from the wrong period. It's like they said, no, no, we did a research, and the cassette was invented in 1961. And I said, yeah, I know. But I can specifically tell you that I've heard an interview with the guest who when they wrote American Woman, which was like 1970, um, they said they would have never actually that they started that just as a jam, that song, just they're waiting for someone to come on stage. And they would have never even recorded that, that song, but somebody had a cassette player in the audience and played it to them at the end of the show. And I remember Randy Bachman said, and I had never really seen a cassette player before. And that's 1969, oh, wow. say. So the thing is that I knew that was wrong. Because I've, I'm old enough to <laughs> live through that. And sometimes I'll, I'll just say, whoop, and, but it's too late. So they, these people brought out a set. And this is for a movie. It's going to be on Netflix. And yeah, they have the wrong, totally wrong period for a cassette recorder <laughs> at that time. And you know what the thing is? That probably nobody will be the wiser because 
you know, a lot of that stuff, people, I guess it's, it's not, it's, it gets to be less and less important, I guess, as, as the times change, you know, with rotary phones being correct for the period and all that kind of stuff. They, you know, I mean, times have changed. So it's time to get a younger uh, props master in there. But, you know, having said that, I've worked on, not as the props master, not as the head of the department, but I've worked on some really huge movies that were filmed in Toronto. For example, worked on Pacific Rim. Mm. Um, oh, nice. Which has got to be one of the largest budget films that were ever filmed in Toronto. I worked on that. The prop master on that was Chris Gay. But that was huge. Huge. Yeah. Team with like hundreds of extras. You know, yeah. Uh, all carrying stuff around inside of those, uh, those robot craft and all that. I mean, there was a lot going on in some of those. I worked on both of the It movies as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was a props uh, buyer in that. And I worked on a lot of the second unit stuff with the scary clown stuff. And, I, you know, I do have some, I do have some stories from that. I'll, I'll tell you for when we did the It movie, especially the first one with the, the kids the first time, it was all filmed so that they didn't bring in the clown until the last minute. And those kids never saw the clown. Until <laughs> oh. The first time they encounter that clown, which I think is in the basement of the uh, uh, the sewer or something like that, you know yeah. what I mean? That, the little the little kids falling into, mm-hmm. and um, none of us had seen that clown because that was the director's intention was that when that clown showed up the first time, he wanted to scare the bejesus out of all those kids. <laughs> That's so great. Half the crew at the same time. And I think you <laughs> Oh, yeah. I love those movies so uh, much. And actually, that's, that's, I come around to that because, like, I thought a lot of what Animorphs was, was kind of, there is some horror there. It's horror. I mean, it's, it's science fiction, but it's what I used to call BEMs, bug-eyed monsters. Yeah. You know, you've got them there. You've got, you know, you've got, um, uh, them promising certain annihilation to the planet or you know, <laughs> force integration. I mean, that is scary stuff. It's nice. It's nice. There's a smoke machine moving in the background, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, uh, I, I, that, I, that's one of my favorite. I've done a lot of horror. It turns out, in, you know, if you include the it films and um, goosebumps and, and animorphs, I chalked right up there with being, that was another horror show I did. That's how I felt anyway. And yeah. Our job was to try and scare kids. And, you know, I, I'll sing on it. And, and I, I hope that say, say the same with you, uh, Megan, that I hope it, it did scare you because our job was to scare you, but not too much that you'd be, you know, damaged for life. <laughs> no, I, at the time, like my favorite shows were uh, Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And Alex Mack was up there too, just yeah. to, for that sci-fi side. But I was also, you know, reading Animorphs and Christopher Pike books. Like it, if it held my attention. I can't tell you if it like absolutely scared me, but it held my attention. And if that was the things holding my attention, it did its job. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, those Animorph books were just about the perfect length. You know, they weren't, you know, um, War and Peace. <laughs> they were something you could sort of tackle in a weekend and, you know, because, oh, yeah. maybe, you know, by the time school got out, you didn't have to do that. How much, much work, homework? I mean, you couldn't use the television because mom and dad would want to watch this stupid <laughs> new stuff. Yeah. And maybe big sister would have it, you know, all, you know, lined up. So you couldn't just watch TV 24 7 like you could now. So a good book, you know, and just 
wrapped up in that universe was a very comforting thing to a lot of kids. And, uh, yeah. and that's why, again, working on a show like uh, Animorphs, I know that I was part of kids' imaginations in some small way. Um, even if it meant sort of just putting, you know, blue paint on a horse's um, genitals, <laughs> um, or, or designing something that I wish it would have built better because it didn't spin enough. But um, in other ways, though, we did some we did some great stuff, as I say, um, because um, I just know it. I know that um, kids have come up to me, uh, you know, in, in many different ways and said, "Oh, you've worked on Goosebumps and Animorphs. Oh, you know, I love that show." And of course. You know, I'll say, oh, yeah. great. You know, I'm, I'm glad you did because uh, we, we worked as hard as we could to um, to scare kids. And I, I again, I'd love to know what the probably opening numbers were for um, season one of Animorphs. Because I know, for example, I've heard that when I did um, some of the Goosebumps stuff, you had maybe 20 million households tuning in to that's see an episode. So cool. And like that's, you know, in the 2.2. You know, two, uh, two mom and two point two kids or whatever. I mean, that means that you've got you know tens of millions of people watching that, and um, that's the power of what what was network television at the time. And um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, when we got a guy like Tim Bond to do um, Animorphs, he had done another thing he did, which I was impressed by, is he did an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. And it was the one that I really liked. I can't remember exactly the one now, but it was very centered on data, that episode. Um, and I remember that he, he sort of wore that as a badge of courage because he was a, he's, he's from Toronto, too. Tim Bond was. He just lived around Palmerston, um, which wasn't far from where I was at the time. I used to see him around. And, like, I don't know if he's still around, Timothy Bond, but a great director. And... Um, yeah, that was uh, that was a time where there, there were some great directors actually flowing through Toronto. Um, we had William Fruitt, I believe, directed some of Animorphs as well. Okay. Um, he is kind of a famous Canadian director, but um, he did several Goosebumps. But I think he did, uh, he did Animorphs as well. Uh, Don McCutcheon is another person that directed some of the Animorphs that I was on. And Ron Oliver. Um, those are the chaps that I remember um, specifically doing um, Animorphs. And, uh, you know, of them all, I think I knew Ron Oliver the best. I've worked with him several times. And uh, he's roughly my age. A very successful man, though. Um, and, um, yeah, I've actually uh, got a lot of funny stories about him, but maybe tonight's not the night. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did get one question that I thought was excellent. Um, the particularly uh was there any censorship issues to work around particularly in uh the alien weaponry departments uh because i i know the other thing that a lot of people talk about is how the the yerk weapons look like flashlights and like was that an intentional thing to make them less scary dangerous i'm not entirely sure you know, not showing kids guns. <laughs> you know, that's that's another great question, and I would say that yes, um, they would definitely have been watered down um, to make them less uh, weapon-like for television broadcasts. And that was something that uh, I faced time and time and again. And 
to a big extent, I almost like agreed with it too. Like I, like I understood that you can scare a kid a lot of ways, but maybe with a really sharp weapon or something really sort of um, uh, lethal looking isn't the best way to scare them. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, and, and uh, but what I will say about television at that time was that we would get um, a report from the censor bureau. Um, well, even before that, let me say this. Um, to work in kids' television at the time, you had to go through a police check. No. I certainly, I did. Um, that makes sense. One, because basically early on, you, they would just ask if you had a criminal record. And if you said no, that's fine. And if you did, then it's time for the police report. And uh, I do remember working on one child's television show where uh, the boom man came in to boom for about a week. And then all of a sudden there's a different boom man. It's like, oh, yeah, police report came back mm-hmm. on him. Oh, uh, no. Children. Um, but uh, getting back to, uh, to things. So for television, um, these sensory uh, reports would come back and they'd say that this child you know shouldn't be carrying this gun because the gun is actually in the statement to be kept in a locked cabinet with uh, the ammunition must be stored in a different cabinet that's also locked and uh, so they would make them rewrite stuff all the time um until it fit the, the censors issue you know issues for it. and again we're not dealing with teenagers here we're dealing with very young almost preteens because i felt that with a lot of these shows it it was designed for 12, 13, and maybe the cast were 12, 13, 14, but kids 9 and 10 were watching it, and 11 yeah. were watching it. You know what I mean? And they were aware of that, too, because they're watching with their their brother and sister. And so, anyway, um, that was something that was uh, – they had to water it down to a certain extent because that's that's the way television works. And sometimes things are clear for a book or even just like a name or something – it's in a book. Like people say to me, like in one episode, they had this this product called Instatan for My Harry's Adventure. You know, the, in the book, it's Instatan. Why? Why is it in the in the um, television series? Why is it called Instant Tan? Why did it change it? You know why? Because for a book, Instatan cleared, but for a TV series, it didn't. Mm. I mean, somebody owns that name. They advertise to that name, oh. and you can't use it. And there's okay. a lot of stuff actually that we we had to do. We weren't allowed to sh- try and sell any product. The, the, the calculation was that's why you don't see any advertising and things anymore. So there's no Coke, there's no Pepsi. It's all generic right. stuff. No Cinnabon. I remember we we even covered up um, logos on cars, and the reason is that wow. they take a sum total of the amount of advertising that is going to be shown to a child in a 30 minute period. And that's all the commercials that you want to run with uh, your sugar frosted flakes. You know, <laughs> therefore, if, if there is a Pepsi bottle or something in the shot, or a Mercedes pulls up, they're going to say, "Oh, that's going to take time away from that." So we covered everything all the time, and we changed wow. stuff all the time. Um, and that's again, that, that's the difference between television and film. I'm sorry, television and. Um, for ch- for children and ch- and adult television is because especially at that time you had to be really careful of what you did 
And that's why I stayed in it. I stayed in it for the hours. I stayed in it for many reasons. But again, you, you just get good at working with children and, yeah. and getting yeah. the best you can out of them. You know, you're not going to start swearing. You shouldn't smoke cigarettes around the children. Yeah. You just learn to be that way. And that's what we, I was working with a really great group of people right around that time, actually. And I still, a lot of those people that were on those shows, they're still around in Toronto. And I work with them all the time. Uh, the guy so that cool. painted the horses, yeah. the horse, my friend John, I'll be working with him very soon on A Handmaid's Tale. Um, <laughs> buyer uh, for me who got the, the paint, a lady named Jacqueline, she is also on Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's a sort of a small business. There's a lot of us that are still um, work, that work there. And you know, a lot of us have retired and a lot of us didn't sort of carry on with it. But I'm, yeah, I'm happy to stay 35 years in. I'm still... Uh, I'm still doing it. And imagine that I've got all, I've learned all these things now that I didn't know all those years ago. Yeah. So sometimes it looks like yeah. and go, oh, that license plate, it's so stark white. I should have <laughs> run and sprayed a little bit of black paint on it or something. You look at that now, but there wasn't as much time. There wasn't as many yeah. people at the yeah. time. So it's a lot, it's a, you know, yeah, it, it was a different time then for sure. Um, we talked about, about this before we started recording. Um, but your your kids and your wife were in an episode. Um, yes, I have questions about that. But did your kids read Goosebumps or Animorphs at all? Yes, um, uh, they certainly read uh, Goosebumps. And um, my, I would say for Animorphs, they were given a couple of the books, and they and I'm, my son certainly would have read some of them. My daughter was a bit young for it. Sure. And then I, you know, I don't think she really got into it. But um, as for Nigel, that's his name, my son. He, um, there, I do have a funny story. He was in a couple of the episodes as a background performer. But I don't know if you ever seen um, Welcome to Horror Land, the, the Goosebumps episode. That's where they have like an amusement park, but it's run by these horrible, scary-looking beasts. They have like <laughs> horns and everything. Anyway. I came in to do a rare Saturday performance um, where we're going to do it specifically for Fox Television. And this guy, Ron Stefanik, was going to wear the mat, the whole suit. He's going to sort of go, and coming up now, kids are going to do this, that, and the other. So anyway, Nigel comes in. He's only about maybe seven or eight. And the producer comes up and goes, you know what? We were thinking we've got a great idea. Would your son be interested where we could use him as a background performer in this and uh, Ron will do something with him and he'll, he'll pick him up and, uh, and you know, we won't be able to pay him much, but it's going to be a week from now, next Saturday, he tell all his friends that I mean, millions of kids are going to see him. So I went to Nigel and I said, Nigel, um, would you be interested in doing that? And he was just a little guy. And he said, yeah, okay, daddy, I would. I, and he, he, I said, great. So I went back to him. I said, great. Yeah, he said, he's interested. I said, let's just bring him over, uh, Ron, and we'll just go through it. So Ron came over, and he was in character. And he went, oh, and he no. picked up <laughs> Nigel, and he held him. I tell you, Nigel was struggling and fighting him off. He put him down, <laughs> and I said, I need a minute. His mother wasn't there. It was just me and Nigel. And I was working across <laughs> him at the time, and I says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Nigel, but all your friends 
and millions of Americans will see you on television. <laughs> Please do it. And he didn't, he, and he wouldn't budge. And so that was it. They did it without the kid. And um, <laughs> I, I, the thing is, Ron was my friend. And I often say, when I see Ron, I go, if you just would have been a little easier on my kid, you'd have been seen by millions of Americans and all of <laughs> the hero, everyone. He could have become a famous actor. So, yeah, that was, but Nigel did hang around a few times. And he got somewhat interested in seeing me run behind the scenes and doing my magic. So I often wondered if he'd become a sort of a, a props man. Um, but he actually chose a different path and he became a camera man. Oh, so cool. he now uh, works uh, as a camera operator, um, pretty much all, uh, sorry, as a focus puller at the moment, which is like the first assistant camera. And uh, he, he's been doing that for about the last year. I'm very proud of him. He's uh, carrying on the tradition now of filmmaking in our uh, family. That's incredible. That's so cool. And he's probably the one thing that's stopping me from retiring because I, I was thinking I might be retiring in the next year or so, but of course, a great time to see him if he's on a TV series. I, I, I'm, I've been in the union long enough where I can get a seniority call. So I can go, what show's Nigel on? Oh, Aww. hey, Nigel, I'm going to be your on-set props guy tomorrow. Uh, That's so cool. I'll see him that way. So it's happened a few times. And actually, uh, most recently on a show called In the Dark. I don't know if you watched that show. Yeah, uh, the Hulu horror show. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, she, the one where she's in the dark, she's blind, I believe. She plays... Uh, it's and that, that that's the one uh, in the dark that I'm thinking of anyway. There's so many that okay. sort of revolve around that. There's the scary things we do in the dark, whatever, and then there's another one we do in the shadows. Those are all filmed in Toronto too. Okay, particularly one he he worked on that, and um, so I came out, um, and we we played coy all day, where it's like I didn't tell anybody that I was you know his father. And, stuff. <laughs> and then, to my surprise, they went, oh, listen. Would you like to have, we have a second unit? It's going to be like 20 days. Would you want to take that? And I said, sure, I want to take that. And the funny thing is that I hadn't, they didn't offer it to me because Nigel was there. At the oh, that is cool. By the way, Nigel's my son. They're like, what? He didn't tell us that. <laughs> like, no, right. But it, so in some ways, Nigel got me 20 days work because, you know, I wouldn't have <laughs> taken that. I wouldn't have taken that day. Yeah. Unless he would have been there just to hang out with him. And then, I guess they did a good enough job where they went, hey, you know, this guy would probably be okay to get second unit. You so, still got the skills. Yeah, well, he's, <laughs> he's thrown my name out there a few times. And so um, I would like to keep working with him. Um, I don't know what she's going to be doing lately. Um, I don't work in features as much now. Uh, one of the big reasons why, funny enough, is just uh, geography. So I live around the west end of Toronto. Toronto's pretty notorious for very bad traffic jams. Um, most of the movies are filmed in the east end of Toronto at a place called Pinewood Studios. Okay. And this terrible um, traffic reconstruction where they're tearing down a major artery, the highway that leads there has been ripped apart. Mm. So um, anyway, so in the west end now, there's a new studio that's opened up at 777, call it 777 Kipling. And that's where they film Handmaid's Tale. Um, they used to film Titans there. The boys... Excuse me. And there's several more. There's it, it, the heavy ability to shoot six series out of that one complex, and it's an eight minute drive from my house. So, let me just say, I love to work on Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> it's an eight minute drive door to door. Oh, yeah. And I also, it's also the thing about Handmaid's Tale is it's, it's award winning. I mean, it didn't, yeah. it didn't clean up this year, unfortunately. It's no Ted Lasso or um, uh, <laughs> well, the, the Crown, but. Um, 
I got to say that working on Handmaid's Tale has been very um, rewarding for me too because it's um, it's a big deal to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It seems relevant, crazy relevant somehow, and um, it's very well made. And that they, they they hire very experienced people and they spend a lot of time on their sets. And so there's some beautiful sets on Handmaid's Tale, and I was involved in several of those this year. I, I, don't, I don't know if you watched it, but I spent weeks and weeks just on the ship sort of that red ship that she goes on. I don't mm-hmm. want to reveal too much more detail on that. <laughs> okay. Um, and there's a boarding border crossing and there's some, some, some sets we did there involving uh, the um, uh, international criminal court and so on. And a lot of attention was paid to those. And I'm very proud to work on that, that show because um, it's won a lot of awards and uh, millions and millions of people have seen it all over the yeah. world. And yeah. so I'm sort of proud sometimes when, in a weird way, when I see women dressing up with the red coats to protest something with a white hat that's on. I mean, and when people say, oh, you work on that? Oh, you know, we watched that. And, you know, we, we binge watched it from beginning to end one weekend. And it's like, oh, what do you want to know? <laughs> Just yeah. like I've been there for you. So it's really, yeah. what I was going to say is that um, the new, unique thing about props is that you're there. I mean, you're, you have to be there because at, when they yell cut, usually you have to go and reset a prop. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, take the $20 that, you, that he gave to the taxi driver and put it back in your actor's hand and make sure everything's okay. And then you know, a lot of times what we have to do is we have to go, oh, and by the way, your hair's, you know, just a sec, you know, Joanne, can you come in? I think she does hair and all that kind of stuff. It's, it becomes that sort of a fraternity in a way. And, um, so I was there when I say to people when I was there for Adam Morrison Goosebumps, like I was there for it. Like I was there take yeah. after take, night after night. The producers would go home. A lot of people weren't there the whole time, but I was there for it. Um, so, you know, you start to be, um, what you do is you're looking out for everybody in that case. You're making sure the kid's okay, that he's not too tired to trip over some stupid extension cord yeah. at three in the morning. And um <laughs> It, it, you know, it was it was a big deal, especially when they were in the costumes, because some of these guys that were wearing these costumes, you got to imagine, it's the middle of the night, you might have contacts in, you've got this rubber thing on your face, and <laughs> these guys are walking around the parking lot. And I remember saying to some of the people, it's like, I know it's not our jobs, but if you see some guy, and he's got a tail and some horns or something, walk up and make sure he's okay walking wherever you're going just you know you don't have to but do that and so yeah that that's that's sort of what you get you get to that level i mean again with like i was on a show one time where they had a dog come in and the poor props master he accidentally misfired the gun oh no like just oh. and the dog freaked as a matter of fact the dog oh, couldn't no. work anymore dog couldn't be on the set dog couldn't be brought back they lost a whole bunch because of that. And that prop master got fired and this prop master got hired to replace him. <laughs> mm. And I remember oh, I went in there and the guy said to me, do you have your gun license? Because in Canada, guns are a big deal. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. a lot more serious here. You have to have all your possession and acquisition license. He said, and I said, yeah, I have it. He says, I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yep. I want to see it. So it makes me pull out the card. What's that? He goes, what do you do 
if there's a freaking dog in the room. <laughs> I said, I have no dog in my room. If there's a gun, I'm going to go off. He goes, exactly. You're hired. True <laughs> <laughs> oh. story. Oh. You know? Yeah. Because, you know, you want your you don't want your puppy around one of the, the horse. Oh. Imagine the horse. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. The horse, you know, Oh, bang. my God. Whoever painted the blue would be so injured. The tiger. Oh. <laughs> well, the tiger The tiger is a classic story looking back on it. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad yeah. you like that story. Because, you know, I, I, I wanted to save that one up for you because I thought it was important to, to get that out there early. And it, it's true. It really happened. And um, and that guy was a strange guy, actually, the, the Pullmanville Zoo guy. That zoo is long gone now. Um, and I thought that the guy that sort of ran that um, show now, did they have elephants on there? I think they had an elephant in one episode. Did you guys see one in the first? I feel, like there, I feel like there is an episode in, in, like, maybe part two. Because I do actually, something yes. came to me, there's one more story I do have about that. And that was that um, Animorphs was filmed in many places, but our home studio was right in downtown Toronto at Bathurst and Fleet Streets. And it was in the old Molson's Brewery building. Um, <laughs> and so it was a big, tall brick place. And, uh, you know, but it had loading docks. So we used to get, we had studios in there. You'd take a loading, big elevator up to the right floor. You'd get everything. And so it was a good place to work out of. Anyway, one time I, I'm pulling into my parking spot and there's this big trailer. Um, that it was parked outside um, and it had like iron bars on where the windows were and things like that. And anyway, I didn't think much of it, but there was this old bloke and he was the property manager for the building. And I'm walking past, I remember he had an accent. So I, I must do the, I must do the story with his accent. So <laughs> I said, good morning, Bill, or whatever it was. And he goes, we're not. And I said, everything okay? He goes, no, everything is okay. I said, oh, what's going on? He says, did you notice that trailer over there? And I said, yeah, I, not really. Why? He goes, well, freaking look at it. Take a good look at it. It's moving. It's swaying around. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't know what's in Bogota's going on there. I mean, you know, taking license. So I'm like, well, I said, look, if you like, um, we can drive my car around and you can use the tailgate and you want to take a hop up and look and see what's in there, you know, make sure everything's okay. Goes, okay. Alan, we'll do that. So we went over and uh, remember I was standing back. I'd gotten it all in position and he climbed up and looked in and then turned around. And I said, well, what is it? Billy goes, bloody elephants. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't think so it was in his amazing. contract to have elephants and all the potential problems. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, we're bringing them up on the elevator, Bill. <laughs> but that was just so funny because that was what kind of um, Animorphs was in a nutshell, was that there was some pretty crazy stuff being done with with animals back then. I mean, uh, I remember a few times, like... Uh, like as I say, the hawk, the hawk. If, if it wasn't tethered, the hawk might fly away, and there'll be no more hawk scenes yeah. for the rest of the show because <laughs> they lost the hawk. You know, <laughs> that was a big part of it. And um, 
other things as well. I mean, you had to be very careful. I mean, I remember Brian Renfro, the dog trainer one night, um, they have what are called lockups. Sometimes you have to have a dog in traffic. It's a very dangerous thing to have mm-hmm. a dog in traffic because the first AD, he's not the director. He's in charge of all the stuff. He's, he's got a lock set down, say, okay, we're all locked up. Is everything, the traffic locked up? Okay, release the dog, right? Release the dog. That means that everything's safe and the dog won't get hurt. Well, okay. one night we're doing something and somebody misses the lockup and a car drives and just hits, just about hits Brian Redfro's dog. And oh. Brian Redfro, big <laughs> Vietnam vet, uh, veteran with um, big tattoos on his bulging biceps. And I tell you, Brian comes over and this guy doesn't know who he is. He's just some idiot in a car who's driven through where he shouldn't. And I see Brian come over, and he's furious at this guy, and he wants to rip him out of the car and beat him until he's a bloody pulp. That's what he wanted to do, and I could tell that because I could see what he's lining himself up at the window where he's going to take his first couple of shots to just render oh my him gosh. conscious and able. Anyway, we had to defuse the whole situation. <laughs> but um, it was one of those things, again, where um, I remember that because you're kind of at the cutting edge of what can be done with animals, you know, for 1998 and yeah, with all that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, there was some <clears throat> there was some tense moments there with uh, with elephants and with uh, tigers and with uh, other animals. Too, yeah. I understand better, I guess, why they do a lot of CGI animals now. <laughs> like, I mean, theoretically, I always understood, but hearing this, yeah, okay. CGI all the animals you want. <laughs> Got it. And kids too. And kids too. And uh, and I mean, early on, maybe go for something because the dog was good in it, but the kid was terrible. But you know, they they were put in those things. I think sometimes too, they didn't learn early enough to isolate the dog so that you couldn't see any human, any kid in it. So that if the dog was good, it's just a knee that's moving, right? But right. if you look at some of the early stuff they did, especially with that. Um, abandoned uh industrial place there you'll see that the dog is in there with a pack of all of them and they're judging the entire performance on not just the the kids but the dog too yeah and that's not isolating properly and uh that's stuff that they they had to learn the hard way i think a few times Mm -hmm. and uh after that they really started to be a lot more careful to say second uniting stuff as we call it going we're not gonna have time to (laughs) shoot tobias's as the hawk dumping <laughs> yeah. up on the dough and whatever, that's got to get pushed to another day. It can't be on our day. We'll say, hey, highest, okay, highest, Tobias is a hawk now. We're not going to shoot that tonight. Back to Tobias is a human. Okay, he's back to human again. Moving on. They did that a lot more. <clears throat> and then you'll see that there's just, it becomes a cutaway with no more humans in it. It's just the hawk. You can get that in the night or whatever. So, um, they got better and better at that. That's for sure. And so some or some of the early days with Animorphs, I think they, uh, yeah, they made those mistakes and they regretted it because it doesn't mean you won't get it. Just means you spend a lot more money on having to restage the whole thing. And part of that involves keeping things on standby. All the sets. Oh no, we're not going to wrap that. That's all on, on standby until we reshoot it. And all those rentals of all those things, those antiques, they can't go back yet because now we're going to hold it. That all that starts to add up. Yeah. Right. So they got a lot better after a while with going, isolate the animals, don't do um, uh, so many complicated animals or dangerous animals. 
um, <laughs> and try to keep it in some way simpler with things that Brian Renfro could handle. Who could do dogs and cats and horses? Right. Um, and uh, and and leave it at that. And and so we didn't do the, a lot more stuff with scary animals after that. After a certain point, probably just so, as well. But we did a lot of stuff, fun stuff, just the same. I think. Yeah. Uh, so hearing all that, we just watched an episode where there's essentially two Jakes, and I don't know if you worked on it. I think it's like roughly around that seven eight mark um but they ended up bringing aaron ashmore in and we were kind of curious if that was something that they had always planned to do or was it something that they decided to do after they got a second unit no that was decided i remember specifically um that they wanted to exploit that that he had a twin brother (laughs) and it was well known well known <laughs> who couldn't act as well but looked just like him and so uh, and I and I'm, I wish I would have looked this up ahead of time but I'm pretty sure I'd worked with Sean Ashmore before he must have been an episode of Goosebumps but um, I I believe have, it. that's a separate Google search if somebody wants to make but um, <laughs> he uh, he came in he's very tall I think very uh, commanding presence uh, he had um, charisma and so. Yeah. I think uh, to a certain extent, um, and, and I also thought really, uh, you know, Boris had a really good part there, uh, uh, who played Marco. I mean, he, he had a really good part. He, I, I wish they would work more with him to get a better response from him a few times because he was kind of that guy. Like I liked how he was like the always the last, like no, I don't want to do this, but he was also like the guy you need, right? Because he's going to be the guy that's going to come out, you know, to, to save you all. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he was his character, I think. And I think it must come through in the books as well. It's like you wanted to have Marco on your side, um, but he would be kind of the last guy you'd maybe trust to, to help you. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was good. But, uh, you know, there's so many decisions they made with not going with another take. And I regret it. But, you know, you guys liked it. I, I, I'm. One thing I hope is I didn't dwell too much on the negative side of things here with, with uh-huh. Animorphs because um, <clears throat> I'm proud of what we did and uh, I did go for two seasons um, and for various reasons they made the decision not to, uh, to carry on. I had already left by that time I had joined uh, a different union because that was where I wanted to go. Um, but <clears throat> I never worked with any of those people again, unfortunately, after that. So, um, yeah, when I finished up on... That's summer '98. That was a big change in my life then. But um, as I say they were they were great times uh, working on Animorphs, and um, I hope that it does come through for you for you guys. I hope that there is a, a movie or a new adaptation of it because oh, for sure, you know, there's one thing kids are always going to be interested in this sort of stuff because mm-hmm. they, they hear both from their parents maybe, or there's still kids that I think there's a whole revolution now where. You know, like you can't be handing the kids the iPads when they're four years old. You know, they'll never read books. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have to be taught that books are really, really, really important, and you'll have the rest of your life to look at that iPad if you choose to. But um, there's not a lot of scientists that became scientists by looking at very intense displays of video games at a very young yeah. Age. So I'm sure glad that all I had was books. I think you <laughs> as well. I mean, if you had TV and books, you know, I'm not saying you didn't have TV, but there's so many distractions nowadays where it's like, do kids read anymore? Do they read yeah. the Animorph books? 
they read these comic books anymore. I sure hope they do because, you know, part of it was that I think that we sold more books when Goosebumps was on, you know, like not less. It didn't kill their um, numbers at all because people wanted to read the next one or read uh, Catch Up and be ahead of what was going to be released and yeah. decide which one. And so there's that whole thing going on. And I don't know if it goes on now. I mean, a lot of stuff's based on um, um, video game characters. I personally worked on a lot of um, men in tights, as it, as it were. I mean, I worked on uh, this movie Shazam. Um, I worked on it for months and months and months. <laughs> I'm sorry. That. This movie Shazam. Did you see Shazam? Shazam. Did you see Shazam Not... with uh, Levi? Zachary uh, Levi, yeah. Zachary Levi? Yes. I worked on that for months and months and months. Are you kidding? <laughs> you are my I... eating Zachary Levi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a whole separate discussion if you want. Uh, I do I do have a couple of funny stories about him. I mean, they oh, they tried to hide that suit. They didn't want anybody to see him in the suit. Oh, the suit's a big deal. Don't show the suit. And they made a mistake of one day he was in a shopping mall, the Woodbine Center. He's filming there. They didn't take the proper precautions. And that night. It was everywhere on Twitter. <laughs> I remember when that Zach broke. Levi. I just saw it the other day because I tweeted it to my wife. I said, whoa, this is turn. And, and like some of those pictures, like they're shared like millions of times. And it was just really funny because a lot of the discussions were like, well, his suit should be like this. Uh, it should be more like Superman. And it's like, no, Superman's suit <laughs> is made from the planet on type things. It's from the spaceship. <laughs> so it's otherworldly. Shazam is not otherworldly. He's from Earth. He's from this diabolical place where he's in league with the devil or that guy that's below ground, but he's not. And I tell you that the, what they call the nerdiness of the discussions about the suit from there. I can see what I'm <laughs> oh, trying yeah. to limit it. But um, yeah, I mean, we went where that guy was being covered with. People would cover him up with partitions so nobody could see him for months and months. But <laughs> the funniest story of all was that with Zach was that I followed him on Twitter. And I don't think anybody else did. And there was one day it was snowing like crazy and they wouldn't let his plane land in Toronto. So they forced him to land in Buffalo and then drive oh, no. in the middle of a snowstorm. Oh. And Nobody knew. I don't. They just don't tell the crew that kind of stuff. If you don't have to know, they're not going to say Mr. Levi's going to be late, so we're shooting sure. around him and blah blah blah. I mean, they had a dump. But I remember he came walking in, and he had to walk right past me. And I said, "How's Buffalo this time of year?" And he looked at me and he went like this, and he went, "Yeah, not that good. Uh, not my favorite day, whatever." <laughs> and that was that was my funny moment with him because. Um, yeah, he didn't. He didn't want to spend an extra three or four hours getting there, and then get in that suit and work all night. But yeah, Zach was actually a really nice guy. Um, Zach Levi, he he um, he was forced to do training for months and months and months to get in really really good physical condition, and yeah, he lost so much weight for that. And uh, but it, he was a very nice guy. I don't think they could have chosen a better. I think sometimes with some of these characters, they actually make sure that the actor himself is like a good. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. They don't want him to be like it turned out to be like what's the guy uh, from Iron Man? You know, like they don't want to have um, that kind of a uh, uh, background. So anyway, Zach was just—he was the perfect guy for that. I, I thought he was a very decent man. Didn't smoke, didn't drink. It seemed to me he just—he came in, they gave a loving performance. But um, 
yeah, my experience with him was uh, a lot of the times, you know, you've got to hand him a, a prop or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just felt bad because he had so much else going on. Exactly yeah. what I did. Sure. He had to be at hours before me getting the suit on, know all his lines and did, did, you know, deliver in a very enduring way. And then I had to hand him a prop. And then that was filmed all in wintertime, a lot of it outside. And we were all freezing cold. That's what I remember mm-hmm. about that show. Cold. <laughs> cold show but i saw that on the way i flew back from um florida i think uh, last year and i saw that on the on the plane and um you know it was all right <laughs> not much of a movie but i did a lot of what, what brought me into that was that i did so many things with men in tights all in a row like i did the boys i did titans i did um uh that shazam um you did know you... all back back to back and so it was kind of like I didn't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. Did you get to do the boys when Sean Ashmore came on or the first season? I did the first season on that. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it was just, I did a lot of buying on that. But um, I think my most famous moment on the boys was that for the very, if you remember the very, very beginning of that, there's a scene where there's a, a Brinks truck. That smash, the girl smashes in the Brinks truck and Smith splits it in half. Yes. Truck. That was not actually the way that episode started. It started a totally different way, a very boring way. I can't remember how it was, but um, right at the very end of production, they decided to reshoot that opening and have it just be spectacular with this truck. The problem was that the prop master, Davin Sniff, who's a very good guy, and uh, you'll see his name in the credits on that. <clears throat> He's probably one of the top guys now. He had left that show to go on to something else. And I, he had said, I'd like you to take over for me. So I did the very last episode as the head of the department, which I don't usually do. I'm sort of past that, but I did that. And we did that Frank's truck ring. And that was done for Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. The thing about Amazon Prime is they've got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're owned by a guy named Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I've heard of this. <laughs> I worked on that show, and first off the bat, it's mid-season. Uh, the prop masters left; they needed a new guy. He's got to be experienced. They're offering me way more money than I would normally get. It's called overscale. Okay. And they're saying yes. Oh yes, we do it at five more than we normally pay a prop master. I'm like, calm down. Yeah, whatever. Whatever the last guy's getting, that's what I want. And I was cool with them and everything, but. Um, then they want to do this Brinks truck thing. Well, I need to get millions of dollars of sort of fake cash and uh, bring it across the border. And it's actually a very complicated thing because um, if you do it wrong and you do something stupid, uh, like photocopy it, it's counterfeiting and it's very, very illegal. So we actually had, we found a company that did movie money and we had them custom make millions and millions of dollars worth of money. And then we had wrapped it up in all kinds of ways and all kinds of stuff. And we did it. And I'll never forget it. All this money blew around and people were grabbing it as souvenirs. And it's a fool's game because this stuff looks kind of real. So if you steal some souvenir before long, somebody else is going to take it, think it's real, spend it. And you want to know who investigates currency especially forgery issues in the United States. Any guess who investigates? Does the FBI no. investigate? No. Is it the CIA? secret service. 
the Secret Service. Oh, that's right. That's who does it. And I know specifically of a case where a fool went and he needed U.S. money. <clears throat> he bought a photocopier, um, bought the right grade of paper, took some money from a bank, U.S. money, photocopied hundreds and hundreds of copies. So far, so good, I guess. Then, oh, it doesn't look worn enough. He goes to a public laundromat no. and puts it in the dryer with some towels and rolls it around. <laughs> Literally, oh my True God. True story. No. Here's what happens. Somebody notices, gets his license plate number. Next day. Oh, no. On the door. <laughs> Hi, yes. Oh. You'd like to come in. Uh, we have, and, and you know what? It, it turned out. That was forgery. That was like they could have he could be in Sing Sing still. But oh because it's okay, we understand. You didn't it's all about intent. He didn't want to defraud anybody. He just needed a cheap way. But that, that was on the back of my mind. So when I phoned these guys, but what what made me think was that I spent so much money on that show. Like we got all kinds of stuff. I got like those bags. Do you know the type of bag where it's like he's got a uh a lock on it, and then and the Brinks guys carry them. So, like, I, somebody said, get mm-hmm. those. So I ordered those. It turned out to get those bags was thousands of dollars US. And I, normally I would have gone, no way, guys. But I was like, oh, don't get it. It's Amazon. So <laughs> I, I got them, okay. And that's still fine. And I've got, I've got a um, custom decals that are going to be attached to the, the, the money bags on there. They're standing by, ready to go. I get a call from the shipper. Oh, they they haven't they haven't cleared customs. What do you mean they have, they they're held up? You're not going to get. They're not going to arrive in time. And I'm going, oh my god! Think of all the time that these people have spent on. Oh, they're going to be furious with me. They're going to be pissed, man. This is like this is like a five thousand dollar fiasco. And say to myself. And I'm used to that being a deal because props is a small department anyway. Hmm. Amazon, nobody noticed, nobody cared. <laughs> oh my god! If every time I look at that episode, it comes on, I'll go. There's no money bags. They should have been in there. <laughs> <laughs> I spent five thousand, but they're not there because of a shipping error, you know. And that, you know, it's stuff like that. You don't know how hard it is. Like yeah. some of the stuff I work at's huge. Like the company. It gets crazy complicated if you haven't done something right. I, I don't want to go over too many more stories, but <clears throat> I worked on a movie called Molly's Game. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it's, a lot of that has to do with skiing early on. Before she becomes involved in gambling, she's a champion skier. Well, on that film, I was not the props master. I was the, the props buyer. And th- this is a big sort of international feature film with Jessica Chastain. I mean, she's married to a, a prince. She's crazy rich. <laughs> well, on that one, we needed to have her wearing ski goggles and they needed to be anti-reflective coated. Now, the prop master had done a movie before, Triple uh, X, I believe it was called. We did okay. that movie and he ordered the goggles. Everybody chose theirs. Then he had to send them to LA and they did not arrive in time. It took too much time. So anyway, with that in mind, it was time to do Molly's game. That all this cast again. That we're going to have to wear AR coated um, ski goggles, which are not available. It's just, just the Hollywood thing. You can't have all the lights kicking back at the lens. Yeah. So they had to be right. air coated. Well, 
<clears throat> this was a huge movie. So this is how complicated things were. The prop master, Christopher Gage, he's the top guy in Toronto. He's worked on two Oscar-winning movies, Chicago and Spotlight. Um, mm. So he really knows his stuff. Anyway, I don't want the story to get too long, but on this particular one, we had actor fittings early on with Jessica Chastain and other very big actors. And Chris had to walk in and say, hi, you're going to be wearing goggles. So I have a choice of five pairs. Choose one of the five. And that'll be your um, goggles you wear. And I remember a couple of the actors said, well, I don't, I don't really like any of them. Is there another type we can get? And he had to say, I would normally say yes, but I can't. Because what I've had to do is I've had to choose ahead of time, five weeks ago. Oh, gosh. Once. Mm -hmm. Have all those lenses removed. I bought like several of them and have them all AR code. And once you choose, it's going to be, it can only be those five. I'm sorry, but that's why. And it was a bad moment in one way because we couldn't give them everything we wanted. But I, I still look at that moment as being how astute of it was this props master to know that there would yeah. never be enough time for them to choose those on a whim, have that done. So there's several other things we did on that uh, where um, on, on that movie with Jessica Chastain was skiing. We're like, she didn't ski. We had to have all kinds of special rigs <laughs> where she could be oh, squashed platform <laughs> and, and, and green screen behind her. We did all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, I was worried that she would break her freaking ankle or something. You know what I mean? It's really, you're asking a lot of somebody, but um, you know, in the end, I realized the reason I've been hired as a prop spotter on that movie, and I did some of the second in it, was because I was a skier and Chris okay. did not ski. And so we had to buy, like, I'll never forget this. There was one night where we needed stuff. It had to be shipped so that it could go to people to have logos painted on for the Olympics. I had to buy $30,000 worth of helmets, skis, and boots that night. And if I fucked it up, that was it. There would have been major repercussions. And I <clears throat> I went out. I don't smoke cigarettes, but I had to clear the air. I walked out for a while, and I went, you got to go in and write this all down. You have to know exactly what, because this is your last chance. And I even worked it out by time zone. Like, I knew there was, this was closed, but L.A. is still going until, you know, another. Right. I had it all worked out like that. And that was one of the scariest moments of my life. I walked away going. Did I get it at all? And I had to go, don't dwell on it. Yeah. It tried. You either did or you didn't. It's too late. All the stores are closing. I was happy to say that we had plenty of stuff up there. Because The reason was because you don't notice it in those movies. But, hey, for some of these shots, all of a sudden, that skier that was Jessica Chastain is now 30 pounds heavier and four <laughs> inches taller and skis <laughs> really well. But you come back to her and she's a little, you know, all that kind of stuff means that several people are all wearing that skiing guitar and they can't all have the same stuff. Yeah. Jessica doesn't want her helmet going to a stunt person. And a lot of that stuff, it's, and that's why I'm saying props is getting very, it's a very complicated business, especially on the huge yeah. features. And I've mm -hmm. worked on several of them and I would just say, I'm glad I'm going to retire soon. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, maybe I should uh, leave it there, folks. It's nine eighteen. Yeah, no, this was amazing. So so much fun, so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, both of us love this kind of behind the scenes look at everything, and uh, I won't look at film the same again for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's been a fun time. It's been an interesting, rewarding career. Um, Yeah, I'm sort of proud what I've done, and I'm glad I can proud I still go out there and and do it uh but uh yeah when it when the time comes i'll be happy to uh sit in my rocking chair and read my oh, yeah. books yeah <laughs> thank you so much this has been yes, you've been you. so generous Alex, with my pleasure time. megan it was yes. a pleasure i hope uh, i hope uh, i was able to uh help you in some way with uh with your you're gonna snip it around a bit and i i honestly don't know if i'm gonna release it and clean it up or if i'm just gonna release it raw because I enjoyed so much of what you talked about, and I I don't really yeah, I don't, cut much. I don't know that there's a whole lot here to take out. I think yeah. I think what people hear will probably be the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, if you have to bleep my part about the horse bleep. Oh no! <laughs> no trust no, me, you're, no. you're good. I would ah animal fact of the episode. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My pleasure. <laughs>